Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Mark Rowland. I'm one of the pastors here at Anderson Hills United Methodist Church. Uh, normally, uh, on a given Sunday, we have about 100 people who join us to watch online. Last Sunday, uh, we had about 6,000. So uh, we, we are uh, just so excited to have those of you who have newly found us uh, to be with us worshiping online uh, this Sunday. And let's continue to be the church. Let's continue to pray and support uh, our hospital personnel and, and all those folks, the uh, first responders, and, and all those who are really um, taking the risk and are helping to provide for our community. Let's continue to check in on our neighbors and our friends, and uh, let's uh, just be the church. Well, one of our members, uh, Dick Pertell, is the girl softball coach at our area uh, high school um, girls um, team. And 2020 was to be their year. They had seven seniors, and four of them had already been signed up to play college uh, softball. The chance of them winning their division was almost certain. And then the virus. And maybe that's happened to you. <laughs> Victory and success were, were just within your grasp, something that you had dreamed of and, and planned uh, for years, and then unexpectedly, out of nowhere, something happened, and it crushed your dream. Well, that's our story today. Uh, Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem and his ministry in the small towns and villages of Galilee up north have been extremely effective. Huge crowds followed him everywhere, often to the point where he had to sneak away for a few minutes of rest and privacy. Uh, he healed the sick and cast out demons and had taught the fascinated multitudes about the kingdom of God. And the movement was growing so rapidly that at times the poor disciples felt totally out of control and yet totally in love with the Master. I mean, this was their dream season. And so now Jesus is heading into the big city. And this is a journey that he knows has to be made and he knows what the outcome will be and he has tried to explain it to his his 12 disciples, but they just do not comprehend. On the Mount of Olives, he mounted a donkey and begins the descent. And Matthew re reports that a large crowd began to take notice, that they, they, began, to, they began to shout and to get excited. Some of them were, were laying their coats across the, the road into the city. Others were cutting branches from nearby palm trees and spreading them on the road. And, and they're quoting a messianic passage from Psalm 118. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who brings in the kingdom of David. And before long, it turned into a great chorus of, of gladness and, and hope, shouting with joy and excitement. It must have been an incredible scene. Down the Kindred Valley, through the Golden Gate, right into the temple area. And then the unthinkable happens. 
Jesus makes a, a whip of cords and begins to overturn the tables of the money changers. And there's chaos and angry vendors and harsh words and, and priests come running. Wait, Jesus. Don't do this. This is your moment. This is your dream season. This is what we have been waiting for. Don't, don't blow it. Don't antagonize the rulers. And quickly things begin to deteriorate. Plots begin to coalesce. Bargains are made. Judas is bribed. On Palm Sunday, the crowds welcomed him, but on Friday, they kill him. And so Holy Week is a week of, of treachery and denial and lies. It appears to be a, a great victory and success, but it turns into a total failure. And their dreams are crushed. Well, Thursday was the Jewish day, feast of Passover, and the Jewish people would have been making preparations. At 3 p.m., the temple would have been prepared for the great feast, and, and all the leaven would have been cleaned out and burned, and normally the priests worked in monthly shifts, but today all the priests were on duty. And the trumpets would be blown by the Levites announcing the sacrifices who were beginning. And as the worshipers came bringing their lambs, the choir began chanting the Hallel. And each lamb would have been brought to a priest and quickly dispatched with a single knife thrust. The blood was drained into a gold tray and some of it taken and thrown against the, the great altar, declaring the redeeming act of God for his people. And the priest, with the skill of a butcher, dressed the lamb and returned it to the worshiper, who would carry the carcass back to the place prepared for the meal. The lamb would be roasted and then all reclined at table with family and friends for the Passover feast. And after the blessing was said, the meal was opened with the first glass of wine. This was followed by the eating of the lamb with bitter herbs dipped in a paste of mashed fruit and nuts. And, and following a second glass of wine, the son of the family, the firstborn or someone so designated, would ask the question, why is this night different from all others? And then in song and story, Exodus was retold of Israel's deliverance from slavery in Egypt. Jesus and his disciples do the same. They ask him, where do you want us to have the Passover meal? Go into the city to a certain man and, and tell him the teacher has need of a room. So they find the man. He directs them to the house where the preparations are made. They eat the Passover meal. They sing a hymn. Judas departs and they go to the Mount of Olives where Jesus wrestles in prayer while Peter and James and John sleep. Soon after, Judas comes with a group of people armed with swords and clubs to the spot. He betrays Jesus with a kiss, and then he is arrested, taken to the Sanhedrin, and found guilty. Friday morning, he is brought before Pilate, who, after questioning him, decides that he's not guilty of anything, but condemns him to death and sets a guilty man named Barabbas free. Jesus is beaten, humiliated, whipped, and tortured. And by nine o'clock, he is hanging on a cross. And it is a slow and it's a painful death. This is how the Gospel of Matthew records it. 
From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. And about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now let's leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. And when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. So Matthew's gospel describes the physical things that happened, the eerie darkness, Jesus quoting from Psalm 22 and being mistaken for calling for the prophet Elijah, and then his physical death, the tearing of the curtain that separated the holy of holies in the temple, and then this fascinating story of the resurrection of some buried saints who come back to life and appear to many people. I'll bet that was an experience. And then the response of the Roman guards to it all. But this is the lower story. See, there is an upper story behind this, this event. It's not just about a season that ends in, uh, a dream season that ends in tragedy. God is up to something that nobody suspects, not even his closest followers. And it is the New Testament writers who try to explain what is happening. I want you to listen to, to several of the New Testament writers and, and how they understand this. First of all, the gospel writers saying, have Jesus saying at the Passover meal, take and eat. This is my body broken for you. And this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the, for the forgiveness of sins. And then Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. And then Hebrews chapter 9, Jesus did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. And then the author of 1 Peter writes in chapter 1, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from this empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And then finally in 1 John, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. You see, there's something about the blood that they understand plays this central part in the story. 
And of course, there are a number of hymns that speak to this as well. Two of them come to mind. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Or the one that we sang this morning, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sometimes we'll hear Christians pray, we plead the blood of Jesus over this situation. And, and maybe you thought to yourself, what in the world does that mean? Why do they say that? And maybe all these blood references sound weird to you. Maybe it seems like a bad horror movie or something. Or do we really plead the blood of Jesus? Do we really drink his blood or wash in it? What do the New Testament writers mean by this? Well, remember, all of them were Jewish, with the exception of Luke, we think, who wrote the gospel and the book of Acts. And so their sacred scriptures were not the New Testament. That wouldn't happen until near the end of the first century. The only sacred scriptures they had were the Old Testament. And that was the only thing they had to help them understand what the crucifixion of Jesus meant. Of course, the major theme of the Old Testament is, or at least much of it, is, is this idea of sacrifice. If you've ever read through the book of Leviticus, you know what I'm talking about. It's not easy reading. I've had a number of people who have told me, you know, Pastor, I started reading through the Old Testament and I got to Leviticus and I just came to this screeching halt. What is all of this, anyhow? It's all about sacrifice. There are sin offerings and guilt offerings and thank offerings and burnt offerings and, and grain offerings and scapegoats and surrogates. I've been studying the Bible for 40 years. I still can't keep them all straight. But the purpose of them is not so hard to keep straight. They were a means of grace to restore our relationship with God. Put another way, it was a way for sinful people to a, approach a holy God. Leviticus says, you are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy, and I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. You see, a, a holy God wanted a holy people to be a witness to this planet now, the word holy means simply to be set apart, to be different. It's the same root uh, word for saint or sanctification or sacred. And the first time we, we run into it is in Genesis chapter 2 when, when God declares the seventh day of the week to be holy, to be different, to be set apart. We see it again in, in, in the book of Exodus. Moses is told to take off his sandals because he is what? He is on holy ground. And in chapter 19 of Exodus, he tells Israel that they are to be a holy nation. Well, hear that over and over again. Both in the Old Testament and New Testament, God expects his people to be holy. So what does holiness look like? Well, it means to obey God's commands. What were his commands? Well, Jesus does a nice job of summing them all up in Matthew 22 when somebody asked him, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Love God and love your neighbor. That's the heart of holiness. The only problem is 
We can't. Our sin nature keeps getting in the way. So why does God tell us to do something that we can't do? Why punish us for something that we can never attain to? You see, God's justice demands punishment, and we're the same way. We have this innate desire to see justice done. So whenever a crime or an evil is committed, we want justice, and we want the punishment to be commensurate with the crime. And so the blood sacrifices were a way to help worshipers realize that without the shedding of blood, listen, there can be no forgiveness of sins. It reminded them of their need for God's grace and God's mercy. Well, there are a number of festivals and sacrifices throughout the Jewish year, but the main sacrifice was the Day of Atonement, held on the 10th day of the seventh month in our calendar. That'd be around September or October. And the high priest on that day would lead a young bull and ram into the outer court where he would confess his sins and then lay his hands on the bull and, and slaughter it on the altar. He would put the blood in a bowl, burn part of the bowl on the bronze altar, and then he would move to the bronze basin where he would wash his hands and feet and, and enter into the holy place. That would be the second chamber in the, in the temple. And then facing the veil, he would go into the holy of holies. You see, that veil, that curtain, served as a barrier between the holy place and the holy of holies. And, and no one could go into the holy of holies except the high priest, and he could only go in on this one day, the day of atonement, and he had to go in with the blood. And inside the Holy of Holies was the ark, and it was simply a rectangular box made of acacia wood and covered in gold. And the lid, called the mercy seat or the atonement cover, was also gold with two cherubim on top of it with their wings outstretched over it. And that ark symbolized for the Jewish people the very presence and the holiness of God. Well, the priest would dip his finger into the bowl of blood and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat and then seven times on the floor before the ark. And then he would leave the Holy of Holies, go back into the outer court where he would take two goats and they, they threw lots and one of the goats was sacrificed. And then he went back into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled the blood. The other goat was the scapegoat. And the priest confessed the sins of the nation over that goat. The goat was led out into the temple and into the wilderness where it was released. And so the sins of the priest and the sins of the nation were atoned for for another year. Problem is, it had to be done every year. It was a, a temporary solution. And so the prophet Isaiah would write this, The multitudes of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I've had more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. You see, blood sacrifice meant nothing if there, if there wasn't a change of behavior. What should that behavior look like? Well, a clean heart. Again, Isaiah says, wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless and plead the case of the widow. 
So for hundreds of years, these sacrifices are performed in the temple. But it doesn't change hearts. Instead, as so often happens in the history of religion, it became simply rules and rituals. And so because we are helpless, God took the initiative. God's love and and God's holiness combine to to do the unimaginable. God takes on our nature and becomes a human being. God, as a human, lives the perfect and sinless life, and he gives us an example of what that perfect life should look like. And that life then ends with sacrifice. And speaking of that life, Jesus would say in, in, in John chapter 10, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. And I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. And this command I received from my Father. And so you see, Good Friday was was not a tragedy. It was not an accident. Jesus' death on the cross was a part of the plan of God to reconcile us once and forever to himself You know, Matthew records in his gospel, the moment Jesus died, that that something supernatural happened. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And Jesus' followers would would look at this event and, and, and his death, and they wondered, what does it mean? And they looked at the Old Testament, and they remembered the story of the Passover lamb who was sacrificed, and the blood applied over the doorposts of the Hebrews' home in Egypt so that death of the firstborn was passed over. And they saw all the sacrifices, and they saw all of the offerings. They looked at the Day of Atonement with the scapegoat and the blood poured out on the mercy seat. And his followers looked at all of this, and they understood Jesus as the fulfillment of it all. And they came to believe that Jesus Christ substituted himself in our place, that he suffered, that he died, that he took upon himself the sins of the world. And the writer of Hebrews would say this, But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, He went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, it's not a part of this creation, this world. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves. Now listen. But he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, obtaining eternal redemption. There is power in the blood. God himself would be the sacrifice. Jesus, the Son of God, does not just offer a sacrifice. He becomes the sacrifice. He is both high priest and he is the Lamb. And so the blood of Christ is a symbol, you see, that stands for the suffering love of God. We are saved by the blood, and no one is excluded, and it is free for all of us. And what it means is that Jesus' death on the cross has put an end to our separation and alienation from God. The veil that separates us has been torn in two. You see, to his followers, Holy Week looked like a horrible disaster, their dream season crushed. 
but it turns out that after all, it was a part of the plan of God to save us, to save you. On August 16, 1987, Northwest Airline Flight 225 crashed soon after takeoff from Detroit Airport, killing 155 people. Only one survived, a four-year-old named Cecilia. And Cecilia survived because even as the plane was falling, her mother, Paula, unbuckled her own seatbelt, got down on her knees in front of her daughter, wrapped her arms and body around the little girl, and would not let her go. And such is the love of God for you. He left heaven, lowered himself to you, covered you with the sacrifice of his own body to save you. And that's how much he loves you. Today we have this incredible opportunity to, to deepen that relationship with God. Maybe you have been seeking him for a long time and you just can't get to that point where you trust him. Take that next step in your spiritual life. Trust him and turn yourself over to the love of God that's found in Christ Jesus. And at home, discuss that among yourselves. What would it mean for you to totally trust God with your life? What would it mean for you today to surrender yourself to him? Let's pray. Thank you, God, for becoming one of us. Thank you that you died for us so that by believing in you, we can come to live life to its fullest. God, for those of us who aren't sure, those of us who, who are doubting still, may today be the day of turning our lives over to you. May today be the day of placing our lives in your hands. Hear this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.